and welcome again to another episode of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network's Half an Hour on the Radio, where we talk about all things science. And on this week's show, Manisha will be talking about animal behaviour and specifically animal behaviour as it relates to wolves and wolf packs. Chris will be talking to Alanta Collie about her upcoming science slash comedy show, Parasites Lost. And my name is Stu and I will be talking to Glenn Jackson from March for Science about why people are getting out on the streets in April and marching for science. So stay tuned for all of that. animal behavioralists have been observing and studying animals to figure out why and how they do what they do. They, um, animal behavioralists will evaluate every behavior um, that we know of. So from defense to mating, acquiring food, storing food, sleeping, hibernating, whatever you can think of, animal behavioralists want to know why different animals do it and how they do it. And um, they're constantly asking these sort of questions. They want to understand what the goal is, what the reward is, and what's the cost. And one such question could be, why do wolves hunt in packs? And this was the the question that John Vuchitek, Rolf Pe- and Rolf Peterson from Michigan Technological University and Thomas Waite from The Ohio State University asked while they were studying wolves on Isle Royale. What is that? Isle Royale, it's actually this small little um, island in Lake Superior, which is one of the five great lakes that's in between Canada and the United States. All right. If that makes sense for our listeners. Isle Royale. Isle Royale. It's actually, yeah, it's quite quite, um, skinny and long, but yeah, anyways, there's a... In France, they call it quarter pounder. Anyways, now... um, uh, Vujitek, Peterson, and Waite came up with um, a new and different theory as to why wolves will hunt in packs. Now, we generally know that wolves are, are social animals. They do tend to um, live in packs, hunt, hunt in packs, um, except for the given lone wolf. So we do also know that as a solitary animal, individual wolves can survive. But why bother denning together and hunting together if you can survive as a lone wolf? Yeah, and what determines them going either way? I think mostly that there's like a um, a community structure, there's a pack structure, and if you become a lone wolf, it's 
less often by choice. Not to assume that wolves make choices, but <laughs> but they are but they are capable of of hunting and killing on their own. On their own, exactly. That's exactly right. Um, so, like we always, I, I, I assume a lot of our listeners have seen these like video clips or nature docos about like, and we see this lone wolf, maybe two wolves taking down a massive deer or a mm. massive moose, mm. and so you know caribou, that, caribou, exactly. So you know it's quite possible for one wolf to take down its yeah. prey. So, and you think that'd be a good idea because then you don't have to share. Exactly. So what's the point? What's the point of having a partner? What's the point of having a pack? So um, so these researchers, actually, while they were on Isle Royale, they observed 11 of these incidences where a single wolf was able to take down um, a large prey animal. And they actually, that's what set them off on this massive hunt to figure out why, why these pack animals or why this capably solitary animal will always ex- or tends to exist in a pack. Um, while they were on Isle Royale, Vushitek, Peterson and Wei noticed some interesting behavior, but this behavior wasn't actually in the wolves that they were studying at the time. It was actually in the ravens. Every time the there was a moose that was killed on the island by wolves, there were always ravens around. There were ravens pulling off bits of the carcass within 60 seconds of the kill. And a single moose, like a single moose is so much more than a single wolf or even two wolves can consume right away. So the the ravens come right in and they scavenge off whatever they could. Even if the wolves returned after or like uh, for a few days, the ravens were capable of carrying away almost two kilograms of the carcass every single day. So they were losing a lot of that meat to the to the ravens. It may not sound like a lot, but... Um, okay, yeah, it may not sound like a lot, but when it comes to a 450-kilogram animal, carrying away two kilograms a day is, can be a lot, especially if the wolves did all of the work to actually bring the animal down. The authors also included a personal observation where they noted that they've that ravens were responsible for removing half of a 300 kilogram um, moose carcass. So that's a big loss. The authors suggest that the ravens may be guiding the moose, or sorry, the wolves to the moose. Um, so maybe they're they're sort of like aerially detecting. So they're contributing in some way. Yeah, and then there's then they just swoop in for the profits once the wolves have made the kill. Now, if a wolf hunts on its own, it's a, it's likely it's more likely to lose a majority of their kill and basically expend energy and not get as much of a reward. But the there's some estimates that the authors provided, and they said that a pair of wolves would probably only lose 37% of their kill, and then a pack of six individuals actually only loses 17% of their kill. Right. So in this way, they can probably distribute the load. They can um, not not each each wolf doesn't have to hunt independently every time and if they're working in this pack they can probably conserve some energy and also get the most bang for their buck out of their kill so they have to kill more because they're sharing amongst more wolves they're only sharing with wolves and not sharing with birds as much yes so if they no if they sorry what was that well if they hunt in a pack they're sharing with other wolves yeah exactly but they don't just share it with the birds so the the energy and stuff stays within the pack exactly and so if like Wolf A made a hunt or made a kill one day, and Wolf C makes a makes a kill another day. They both benefit, and they're not expending that additional pressure. Whereas, like if you're hunting by yourself, you would always have to be the one hunting and killing. Um, it's a, it's a compelling argument. It's an interesting argument, but I find it a little bit uh, convoluted. It's kind of hard to really. F- trust it. It's a new theory, and I don't want to I don't want to discredit the authors at all, but. 
it's hard to assume or it's hard to um, with a single a single observation or with a single round of observations the authors are sort of making this connection as to what the wolves are doing. They're making inference of a wolf behavior, and then they're also making inference about raven behavior and how that connects to moose behavior. And I think, although I think that the that this the theory it sounds quite good, and it's it's always great to have new and innovative theories coming up and things for us to test. It just I think right now it sounds a bit. Um, it needs more evidence. It needs more evidence. It would be really interesting to see. Mm. Um, how these sort of dynamics play out in other places. I know these authors have also worked in the Yukon Territory in mm. Canada, so maybe it's quite interesting. Um, maybe there'll be correlations and um, are very similar behaviors observed in both spaces. But it's it's an interesting it's an interesting um, finding and it's an interesting thought. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. You're listening to Lost in Science, and it is rapidly coming up to the Melbourne International Comedy Festival for those who are in Melbourne uh, or those who are jealously looking on at Melbourne from around the rest of the country. Uh, now, usually during the comedy festival, there is a brave comedian who um, tries to combine science and comedy. <laughs> Oh dear. This year... <laughs> wow, what an intro. This year the burden falls on Alanta Collie and her show Parasites Lost. Uh, Alanta is here today to tell us about it. Welcome to Lost in Science, Alanta. Oh, thank you for having me. For the second time, we should point out last week you are here to tell us what you could remember about brains. This is very little. <laughs> yeah, well... We, we did what we could. <laughs> maybe you've learned a bit more in the intervening week. Who knows? Magic of radio. Um, okay, so now you must be doing something right with this show because uh, I believe it did sell out at the Melbourne and Adelaide Fringe Festivals. Congratulations on that. Thank you. The question, I guess, you know, doing a show like Parasites Lost, which as the name was just about parasites, the question I have to really ask is why? Oh, look, it's a good question. Uh, I think uh, I have inadvertently and unfortunately gathered more than my personal fair share of personal face-to-face parasite experiences through life. And, um, uh, you know, they say in comedy, do what you know. And so um, there's something enormously cathartic standing on a stage in front of a group of people and just describing the bodily functions that occur when you are infested with various parasites. Your own bodily functions? Is oh, that what yeah. You're... Well, you know, sometimes I'll speak in the third person, but, you know, I'm talking talking about my own, generally. <laughs> oh, this is Spoiler alert. Yeah. This is just between us now. No one's going to know if she can yeah, confess course. up here. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so you have had quite a, How many parasites, different kinds of parasites do you think you have had? At last count, seven. Yeah. So collecting them. Haven't got the whole set yet, but, right. uh, you know, there's still time. <laughs> so like Pokemon. Yeah, it is. It is. Um Yes, less less people intentionally playing along. But yeah. Probably more than who know they're playing along. <laughs> this is true. And probably a lot of also walking down dodgy alleyways like you do with Pokemon Go. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah pretty much. Okay, so what is 
Can you please tell about your background? So that's actually what led you to encounter so many kinds of parasites. Yeah, no, it's a good one. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, my training is international public health. So I spent some time in various universities learning about the various diseases that were out there, the various ways that you contract those diseases, and most importantly, how you prevent contracting those parasites. So I thought I'd uh, take it on myself to spend most of my 20s traveling around the world, uh, working in various parts of, of Southeast Asia and parts of Africa, um, doing health education, you know, saving okay. the world, doing the good thing. Um, and in that time, I contracted most of the parasites that I was sort of talking to people about preventing. So, so does this reflect on your professional ability there? Oh, yeah. Look, I wouldn't hire me. Like, that's not <laughs> yeah. something I'd do. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Well, um, so there are many parasites. I'm particularly interested in those face-to-face um, -face ones that you mentioned earlier, but <laughs> what would be your favourite parasite? I At least a top three. Yeah. So, yeah, because I'm, I'm sure it must be quite difficult to narrow it down to a favourite. It is. It, it is. <laughs> and, you know, there's so many to choose from. Um, <laughs> I have found so many parasites websites in researching this show. So there's like Parasite of the Day. So there's, <laughs> there's a lot out there. Which is something you recommend Googling or just avoid that entirely? Depends on your personal sort of – some people are fascinated, some people are perturbed. Both kinds of people come to my show right. for various reasons. Those there people is... that are perturbed. I imagine, are secretly fascinated. Yeah, it's yeah. a bit like a train wreck. You can't look away. So there is a visual component. There is a visual component. I've done my best. I've explored the lengths and breadths of the internet to find the best and worst pictures of, of the parasites that we discuss. So, you know, it's part uh, education and part personal anecdote. Right. Yeah. Okay, so share, share a good parasite with us. Well, a good one? Yeah. Well, uh, what's your parameters for good? Because they're very good at being parasites. Well, are they good parasites? Are they parasites that are actually good for you? Or? Yeah, well, you know, I think, you know, I feel very much like the 20th century was about killing uh, microbes and anything that was small. And now the 21st century, my vibe, this is me just summarising all of <laughs> medical We're science. 17 years it's in, fine. it's fine, yeah. Um, <laughs> is about actually understanding the function and the role of a lot of those um, bacterials, bacteria and microbes. And um, I do talk about my this in my show a little bit, but basically uh, we have uh, immune systems that have been evolved for forever um, on the constant influx of pathogens and antigens, all these other things coming on, coming on in. And there's now a theory that some of the hyperimmune responses that people are experiencing are actually a result of basically a bored immune system that doesn't have enough to do because there's not actually enough pathogens and parasites in it. So there's quite a few people who are now experimenting with infecting themselves with intestinal worms like hookworms and tapeworms um, on the uh, provise, well, on the um, the hope that it will actually trigger an immune response that will calm the immune system down over time. Because you've got in the immune system, as I learnt last week in nursing, <laughs> you've got um, you know you've got T cells that are, are sort of attacking pathogens, and you've got other cells that are then calming those cells down, and they're the T regulator cells. They're really ah. important. So when you ask the question, what's a good parasite? The, the answer is. They have a positive function, even the ones that, you know, in the right environment can get out of control and cause havoc. We need them in our lives. Right. Well, this is a, that's a this pretty is good a answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Parasite sim sympathy. I, yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. I love um, it. Can we, people expect this level of science in your, in your show? They sure can. Uh, I have to simplify some of it. Um, I got told by another science communicator that you, the rules are that you simplify to the point of 
comprehension, but not beyond the point that it no longer uh, is true. So right. that, that's kind of what I'm aiming for. Um, but yeah, no, there's definitely a big science uh, science communication, lots of evidence in the show if that's your bag. So so definitely right. get along if you're science-minded. But a lot of a bit of gross out as well. And you still haven't given us, I feel, enough gross out that we want from a bit of um, a parasite thing. Oh. So give me give me a... Um, not a good parasite. Give me a, another, like one of the top parasites. Disgusting, yeah, very sad yeah. one. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, I'm not going to give you too many of the ones I speak about in my show. Um, when you did ask before what my t- favorite parasite was, you've probably heard of this one. It's uh, called Toxoplasma gondii or Toxoplasmosis oh, yeah. gondii. Have you heard yeah, of this yeah. one? Yeah, yeah. This one lives in you know cats. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Cats and rats, and probably sixty percent of the people in this room. Uh, more or less. Who there owns are, a cat here? There are four people in this room, so yeah, 60%. I reckon, yeah. I reckon I'm totally <laughs> Doing the gone deed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Isn't, yeah. It, isn't it the one that they think can cats use to mind control or? <laughs> no, I think that's Star Trek. <laughs> I thought there was one like that, that if like the, I think, yeah, mice, if mice get it, it makes them less f- mm. afraid of cats yeah. or something. Yeah. And that's how the, that's how it yeah. gets to the cat. That's right. So it, for whatever, I'm not entirely sure of the the way it does it, but it basically reduces the risk awareness of the mouse. And the mouse, um, which would normally have an aversion to cat urine, doesn't. So it, it goes places where the cats are. It goes up in open spaces, gets eaten by the cat. The cat hangs around with people. The people, I, I think humans contract it through the saliva. And then there's been uh, research that actually shows a correlation of higher risk-taking behaviours in people who are carriers huh. of toxoplasmosis or toxoplasma uh, in humans. We're looking at you, Claire, uh, being a cat owner. Um Oh, yeah, I might. I mean, I just. Are I, you a risk taker? Uh, look, I have to I have to run because I got to get my uh, sports car and drive down the highway at two hundred kilometers an hour, and then I don't know. No, I mean. How do you feel about the smell of cat urine? <laughs> <laughs> Does it frighten you? Um, yes, it yes. disgusts me. Okay. Yeah. So maybe but, you're okay. Yeah. Well, I yeah. I don't know. Human risk taking behavior. What, mm. what, how would that, we blame how would cats? that manifest itself? Yeah. Yeah. Like speeding just, and, like, um, you know, taking a lot of drugs. And yeah. Maybe Wall Street. Maybe they're all just cat owners. <laughs> you could do an analysis <laughs> there. there. That is a cat PhD people. waiting to happen. That is. Um, well, we don't want to spoil your show, but I can I just ask, um, bot flies, do they get a look oh, in? Oh yeah. Bot flies. Uh, I don't mention them in my show, but, um, they they have to be some of the worst. Um, so they lay eggs, from what I understand, they lay, uh, it's a fly that lays eggs that end up on the surface of the skin and then the egg falls into the pores of the skin where it then hatches and grows. And I was reading about butterfly recently, if you squeeze the larvae and if you burst the larvae. So you get a little, you get a little oh, kind no, of like stop. cyst, don't you? You get a it? cyst, yeah. Um, if it is for whatever reason burst. Uh, it releases toxins that then burns through the skin and the flesh. So you just have to kind of just ride it out or get it out very carefully. And the thing that emerges from your skin does not. Yeah, oh, it's yuck. not good. This is, yeah. This is, yuck. Yeah, should we perhaps like end the there? Should we just stop there? Okay. 
You want to discuss I want to discuss it. We went there. I feel like you got one. <laughs> this is what I was – I had to struggle to get that, but that's what I was after. Yeah, some real gross stuff. Well, if you want more um, – oh, yeah. be really grossed out, go see Atlanta <laughs> at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Actually, go see her show. Um, it is nice. – Mel- only for those who are in Melbourne or coming to Melbourne. Uh, the show is called Parasites Lost. It is playing at Belleville uh, from the 10th to 15th of April. You can find more information and tickets at comedyfestival.com.au. Thank you for coming in once again, Atlanta. Thank you for having me. So some people might have heard about the March for Science. Uh, It's happening all around the country and all over the world as well. Um, I have got Glenn Jackson on the phone with me to talk about March for Science and why do we need a March for Science. Glenn, thanks for joining us on Lost in Science. Thanks very much for having me, Stuart. It's great to be here. So... Why do we need to march for science? What's the what's the story there? What's what's prompted people to uh, to think we need to get out in the streets and uh, and stick up for science? I think it's like you just said. It's about sticking up for science. So the main reason is that people. I feel there's a big sort of uh, groundswell of people who'd like to to champion science and stand up for it and highlight its important to importance to society. And that's about making sure that politicians from all walks of life and from all ends of the political spectrum, that they can see that people believe in the importance of science and that it's not only important in and of itself, but it's important to be used in decision-making and policy-making and those sorts of things. And I think that's a really important message, that, that people are willing to come out in droves you know, for, that, for that message. So, I mean, you know, I guess most people sort of think of science as, you know, it's something that happens at universities and away in labs and mm, um yeah. and, and and also probably don't think it's uh, particularly uh, a worry or or anything like that although you know there are there are obviously some people who are anti-science um is mm, yeah. is is that a problem is that part of the reason that that we need to get people out on the street and uh and sticking up for science absolutely yeah it's i think that's one of the key things that that needs to come out of this is People need to see that there's this group of society that recognises that science is so important to everything that we do. And if, they, if we can get people to notice that, then maybe they'll um, you know, go out and read an article or, or listen to a talk or, or go to something and actually take a more active interest. It's also about making sure that scientists themselves realise the need to communicate the work they're doing to the community so that the community can be aware of it and can see the benefit that it gives to them. I think that's a really key thing. And, and as you just said, there are those people who are sort of actively working against what feels like logic and reason um, to, to sort of further a, a, a different agenda. And I guess if we can strengthen this side of the debate to say that the general public understands what science is for and how it benefits them, 
then hopefully those people won't be able to get as much um, groundswell of support as they might like, and we can and we can keep the debate more in that logical and reasoned kind of arena. So, I mean, in the general community, do you think there is? Um, uh, do you think that the majority of people misunderstand science, or do you think it's more of a uh, a sort of minority group who are very vocal about it, who are who are sort of trying to trying to go against? You know, I mean, we're talking about centuries of of scientific discovery, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I think that probably it is a, a more vocal minority that. Um, that are particularly against certain elements of science. I mean, the, the anti-vaxxers and, the, and the, the climate change deniers, those sorts of areas I mean, particularly come to mind. I think that is still a minority. But the problem is, and I mean, I used to be a, science, a high school science teacher, the, the problem is that if we don't educate people as to um, the scientific method, how we do science in itself, and also the importance of, of doing science, um, then their sort of, uh, I guess, fertile ground for um, people to sow the wrong ideas into their heads. And if we can give them the correct information and, and um, educate them about how to understand science, how to think about the way science is done, then hopefully we, we give them those critical thinking skills and those, um, you know, that, that critical evaluation of what they're being told so that they can make a, a more informed decision. And I guess, um, uh, you know, sort of the flip side of that is um, maybe hopefully people can learn how to um, argue with science. I mean, one of the one of the huge arguments that people often use against science is, well, science isn't always right. Um, you know, science yep. has been wrong in the past. Maybe it's wrong again yep. now. But yep. to actually teach them that, well, if you, if you do think it's wrong, you have to go out and find yep. some evidence. Find evidence. And exactly. bring it bring it to the table, and we can discuss what's yeah. wrong with what we know. And that's that is how it works. It's sort of it's a self correcting system. So absolutely, and I think that's a that's a really key message. If we can teach people that we don't think we have all the answers, scientists as a group don't think they have all the answers. Yes, individual scientists fight wholeheartedly for their theories, but they are theories. And and in the end, the evidence that, that backs up those theories is the important thing. And if you can accumulate evidence towards something, then, you know, you've got yourself a show. And I guess this is the kind of um, what scientists sort of get so frustrated with in the, in the, the sort of current climate, I guess, is that um, people are sort of shouting down these, the, the theories that they put forward, but not with a basis of evidence. And I think that's the the sort of worrying trend. And I think that's part of what March for Science is, is trying to reverse that trend and make sure that, that politicians can see that people want um, this, that, that logic and reason and evidence in their decision-making. So March for Science, details? When, when, is, it, um, when is it happening? Okay, so it's, on, it's, it's 22nd of April, uh, which is, uh, corresponds with Earth Day, but um, is, is kind of a sort of a separate thing as well. Yeah. Um, and I think probably for details, best to direct people to the March for Science Melbourne Facebook page if yep. you're in Melbourne. And for other, other cities around Australia particularly, I think there's about 10 cities that are staging marches, go to their Facebook pages and you'll find details there. So, you know, things like, um, you know, start points and, and times and those sorts of things, I think it's best to get from that source of information. 
Okay, so if people just uh, get online and Google March for Science and yep. probably their, their nearest large city, they'll Absolutely. find all the details. Yep, they should do. I know there's certainly there's Sydney, there's Canberra, there's Melbourne, there's Hobart. Um, I'm not sure of all the others, but um, those ones I definitely know are taking place. But yeah, absolutely, get online, go through Facebook, do a search or Google it, whatever it whatever it takes. Just um, uh, if people could come along, that would be absolutely fantastic. Well, yep. If people are interested in that, they can uh, look it up online, and we'll uh, we'll put some details on our uh, Facebook and through our social media as well, just so people can uh, can find links easily. Um, I hope to see a whole lot of people out there on April 22nd. Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science. Glenn Jackson from March for Science. No worries, Stuart. Thanks very much. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.